Welcome back to the Just James Horror Review. I'm your host, Just James, and this is our 31 Days of Classic Horror. Today's show is going to be a little laid back, because I'm going to let you know that I watched six films in the past, like two days. Really, it's more like seven, but the films we're going to cover today. The Old Dark House, 1932. The Ghoul, 1933. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, 1923. The Curse of the Undead, 1959. Carnival of Souls, 1962, and The Monkey's Paw from 1948. Woo! Happy fucking Halloween! We did it. 31 Days of Horror. Tomorrow on Halloween, I'll publish an episode. There's just going to be one movie we're going to watch. And I think I might do a reading of one of my favorite Halloween stories inspired by another podcast. We'll talk more about that later. However, we got six films to cover today. I'm not going to go super in-depth. I'm just going to let you know what I thought about them, and we're going to fucking press on. So I'm going to start with The Ghoul from 1933. The Ghoul from 1933... It's got the the Boris Karloff guy in it, you know, who's in a lot of these films. And uh, straight trash. The movie Straight Up Trash. It's some guy that he wants to be buried with some kind of amulet thing that's supposed to bring him back to life because of the statue of Anubis and all this other stuff. And it's just lame. He, when he comes back to life to look for it and starts ransacking this his old mansion, it's just it's lame. It just looks like him with big eyebrows. I mean, it's not cool. It's not fun to watch. The story is trash. And uh, yeah, that is the ghoul 1933. So we're going to breeze on past that one. The next one we're going to talk about, The Old Dark House. Now, this was billed as a horror comedy and it did have some fun well it had some funny parts in it however i feel like a lot of the comedy in this thing since maybe because it was from 1932 completely lost on me i know there's some jokes that just breezed over my head the characters they got a couple in there that's very much like the honeymooners and i don't even remember what time period that was in but they kind of have that back and forth where you know the guy's kind of fat and bumbling and the girl's real bubbly and just all over the place but then she ends up leaving him for another guy that's there it starts out as a really good movie. You have all these people that wind up in this mysterious mansion where the people that live there are very odd, but because of a big storm and some landslides, all these people get stuck, and there's nowhere for them to shelter in place except for in the old dark house. And like I said, when they get there, there's a butler who's very Frankensteinish and odd, and he doesn't speak. There's an old woman who's just kind of snappy with everyone. There's a really extended dinner scene where one of the brothers is just talking about potatoes the whole time. It's just all very weird. It's very strange. It's not a great movie. That's why I picked these two to talk about first, because would I say watch those? No, they're not fun to watch. They weren't cool. I didn't like anything about them. It almost looked like the kind of films you make when you're like now when they make films to try to piggyback off the success of something else. Maybe it was an actor or an actress or a character or a director or whatever. That's what these films felt like. They were flat and they were just without any type of heart. I just didn't like them. 
And really, the old dark house, I was you just feel like it's going to turn into something this whole time. They have this mystery of the father of the place that lives upstairs, and then you finally get to see him, and he doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then there's a wild man that lives somewhere, and he gets loose, and you're like, what the fuck is this trying to be? Is it trying to be a haunted house thing? Is it trying to be a curse on this house? Are these people got something to do with anything? Is it like a murder mystery? What in the hell is going on? None of it's really fleshed out, and uh, yeah, I'll just I'll stop pooing on it. Just you know, Just know that I didn't like it. All right, next, The Carnival of Souls, 1962. Classic, banger, everyone, it's on It's on all the top ten lists, The Carnival of Souls. And you can just look into the history of it. It's got a lot of really, you know, kick-ass firsts that it was a part of and all. I think, was this the one where it was the first female? No, it wasn't. But anyway, the thing that's cool about this film is it starts out right off the rip it starts out with these these girls they're talking and they're driving around and this car pulls up and it's a bunch of guys and it's back in like doo-wop greasy kind of greaser kind of days whatever so they're racing these big cars and they go across uh, the girls and the guys are kind of racing each other the guys like hey you want to race whatever and they race well then they get on the bridge and the dude just runs them off the fucking bridge i mean i guess you know later on he's talking to the cops he's like well uh, they just tried to go around me and could you know he lies about it or whatever but when it's playing it out he just runs them out of the fucking bridge, kills a whole car full of girls. I mean, it's it's just kind of wild. Um, all of them, but one. So it really has a grab you kind of opener. It's very cool. And then we pretty much follow the one survivor of that car crash and what she experienced for the next week or so. She ends up going to a different town. She plays the organ for a church, but she's not religious at all. It has very, uh, you know, kind of atheist themes to it and all this kind of stuff. But really cool scenes, and the thing I like about it the most is just it's such a surprise ending. And I don't know if they had a bunch of creative stuff like that back then, but I know this is billed as just one of those. Again, this is from the 60s, not from the 20s or 30s, so there's a lot more modern stuff around this time. But the story itself is really cool. You can see how a lot of films that are out today draw inspiration from films like this one. The acting was great. There's a scene where you can really tell, uh, well, I said that weird, tell, tell, where you can really tell that like, there's a scene where a dude just walks into this girl's apartment and starts asking for coffee and shit. And he's real pushy and he's a real asshole. And yeah, so if you haven't seen it, I mean, I'll just tell you. She goes by, there's some kind of carnival that's broke down. She goes, has all these mysterious conversations. She has visions and all this other kind of weird stuff that goes on when she's meandering around the town. And long story short, she's been dead the whole time. And the way they circle this back around to the front of the film and the events that happen there it's just really cool it all ties together really well and it's just an enjoyable film to watch so yeah check out carnival of souls 1962 all right so our next film the hunchback of notre dame 1923 holy shit i've never seen this film of course i've seen clips of it we've all seen clips all the classic clips of this and all the remakes that have been made since then I did not know, however, that this was Universal's, you know, one of their most highest grossing films of the time, of, of the Universal uh, silent film era. $3.5 million in 1923. I think, I don't know what that would buy you, but it's, it's a fucking lot now, so I'd imagine it's a whole lot back then. So it was cool to watch this one just because, like I said, it's one of those where I was never really that interested, like Phantom of the Opera. Just wasn't super, you know, interested in seeing this movie, but I hadn't seen it. And it was free, and it kind of met all of our criteria, so I thought, let's check it out. Technically, he's a monster, right? Or viewed as a monster by the people, so let's let's just dive into it, right? Movie opens and says that it's supposed to take place 10 years before Columbus sailed to the Americas. So that's kind of our timeline. And I believe it's going to happen in Paris. I think that's where all this takes place. And um, 
Wow, it's really hot. There is a lot of stuff on this film that I wanted to get into because I'll let you know, so far out of all these, this is probably the one that was the most fun. Carnival of Souls was better because it was a more updated movie, so it was kind of more enjoyable to watch. But this one, as far as the being in you know the 20s and all that, I, I did like this film, and I could see why it made so much money. The guy who, who played Quasimodo did an amazing job, and of course that's what a lot of people talk about with this film. That Lon Chaney guy did a fucking fantastic job. Completely sold the character. I don't know if this was method acting. And of course, like any film that was good back then, he got all kinds of problems that he had to deal with for the rest of his life after making this film. It's like, you know, the Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz and stuff. Like, he got screwed up, and a lot of other people did. I mean, they just didn't care back then. They didn't have all the rules and regulations that they have now where they actually have to take care of their actors and actresses and extras and all that. So, yeah, if you, you can read about all of his things that he suffered on the set. But he also made a movie that was the best silent film from Universal, $3.5 million. I mean, legend shit. So that's cool. Anyway, the film itself... You're in this town. It shows the king. He's kind of like a tyrant. He's a real dick. We meet Esmeralda. That's going to be our female star of the movie. And we find out, and a lot of this stuff I didn't know, because like I said, I didn't really know the story. I've seen the cartoon, you know, what was it, a Disney movie or something? That's pretty much the only thing I know about this storyline. But Esmeralda was bought from Gypsy Parents. And she is, I don't know if you want to call it owned or her dad or whatever it is, by the guy that's pretty much the king of thieves, so he would be the opposite of the king of the town. And so that's the main crux of the film there, that's the main back and forth, is that you have this king and all of the king's men and all that kind of stuff, and then you have the thieves and the plebes and all of them, so you have the haves and the have-nots. It's a big social class, um, you know, warfare kind of film with Quasimodo just kind of right in the middle of it. So sometimes... It gets so much into one or the other, it kind of forgets what film it's trying to be. Quasimodo kind of takes a back seat in the film, which I thought was odd. Like, the whole middle of it is more about Esmeralda and the strife that she causes between the two different kingdoms than it is, you know, the hunchback in the tower. There are a couple of weird scenes in here, though. The king's captain guard guy, he sniffs a pendant that Esmeralda pulled out of her bra, which I thought was weird. He might have been giving it a kiss, but if you ask me, it looks like he was perving out hard and sniffing it. So I thought that was sort of weird. But he turns out not to be that bad of a guy in the end. But this pendant, she says something like it's enchanted and it's supposed to protect her as long as she wears it and all the, some kind of other weird gypsy magic at the time, which they are not fans of in the movie. But, oh, so uh, Quasimodo, like I said, he's portrayed by Lon Chaney and, if I didn't already say, outstanding uh, performance and no doubt that... His performance, as well as the grandness of the sets, the large scale of the sets, the multitude, I mean, thousands of extras that really make this film feel like real life. So I could imagine seeing it back in the 20s and being like, holy shit, this is so epic. Also, fun fact about Quasimodo, the hunchback, I didn't know that he was blind in one eye and completely deaf. So they, they tell you that in the movie. However, I never knew that. I guess because in the cartoon, he was fucking talking to people. So shows what I know. Uh, let's see, I got some notes in here again, just how it was about uh, social class and social warfare, or class warfare and that kind of stuff. And I think it's funny because the king of thieves is kind, he does some more tyrant shit just as much as the king of the land does. So, you know, even if you're the king of thieves, you're still a king and still subject to that same, you know, follies and sins of a king that's over, you know, the land or whatever. So I thought that was an interesting thing that they didn't really paint either one of them in a good light. They were both sort of bad people, but their objectives, although the same, were just wrought about in very different ways. 
you know, whereas the king would use the courts and the law and all that kind of stuff. And the king of thieves would just use, you know, violence and manpower and all that to get what he wanted across. Uh, Esmeralda is a cool character. She's the one that's kind of just wants peace for everybody. She just wants everyone to dance and be merry and like, why do we have to fight and kill each other? Why can't we all just hang out and be cool with one another? And it's to her own detriment. It gets her, you know, really, it gets her caught, jailed, imprisoned, you know, accused of murder. She gets two-timed by this shitty clergy guy that's got a big bone for her. And he ends up stabbing the captain's guard who asked, you know, was her fiance at the time because he asked her to marry her. He ends up stabbing him in the back and running off. Well, of course, the guards show up and they're like, how did this happen? And she's like, oh, you know, he just asked me to marry him. And then some fucking guy stabbed him in the back and they're like, uh, I doubt it. You're probably a fucking witch. <laughs> Go figure, right? So and her being a gypsy didn't help or whatever. So she goes to trial, of course, kangaroo court. And she's set to be hanged. I mean, just like that. I mean, within like 24 hours, she's about to get the noose, the gallows. But not if our one-eyed deaf boy Quasimodo's got anything to do with it. He goes down and saves her, even after there's a part in the movie where she gets him arrested and tortured out in the middle of town square where they're whipping his ass with uh, the wit, you know, cat of nine tails and all that kind of stuff. But as he's sitting there suffering in the sun, she feels bad and brings him water, and that's kind of how they develop this friendship. So when he sees her about to get hung, instead of thinking, that's what you get, bitch, he swings down there. It's not as cool and magical as in the Disney film, but he does swing down there and rescue her. And this is wraps up sort of the end of the film where we have this really cool, epic last stand that Quasimodo does. That is really cool. I, I thought anyway, for this, like I said, just the grandness of it. I mean, he's, he's in a castle, essentially. He's in the church, so the girl takes refuge, uh, Esmeralda takes refuge in the church, and it's sanctuary, the holy act of sanctuary, so the guards can't come in. Well, eventually, a riot breaks out in the streets against the the fucking plebes and the king and all his people and everyone's just killing each other and going back and forth they all want they won't all want to get inside the castle to get esmeralda and to get the hunchback and all that kind of stuff so he just starts wearing people out i mean this is his diehard moment you know he's throwing shit off the top of the building he's pouring out hot grease on people i mean he's pretty ruthless and yeah the hunchback of notre dame 1923 cool movie i liked it i'd, I'd watch it again even i thought it was uh pretty you know it's it, it's dark and it's got its riveting uh parts to it it's got its other parts that are pretty poetic and just all in all a good movie i'm gonna say it's probably uh about or related to the french revolution and the storming of the bastille and all that i don't know that for a fact i didn't really look into the movie facts of this thing but i if i had to guess i mean it looks very much like that so or at least inspired by that if you know about it let me know in the comments yeah and from there we're just gonna push right on to Curse of the Undead, 1959. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this is a vampire spaghetti western. What? That's right. And I know it didn't match our timeline. It's really close to the 60s and stuff. But when I saw the, the blurb for it on the screen, I thought, no fucking way. I've got to watch this. So yeah, right off the bat, it's a cool movie. It's just a western with a vampire element to it but it just plays out like any other western would so if you like westerns you'll like this it's a cool revenge of course it's a revenge flick right because that's what westerns are most of the time just one guy with a gun's got to get vengeance so it's got revenge it's got you know land disputes vampire it's like it's like blade match meets tells from the crypt you know the demon knight movie mixed with a sullen vampire from from twilight who's in love and all this other sh i mean it's just all these things crammed into one it's got action little bit of mystery 
fucking banging showdown at the very end against good, I mean, literally, and not saying the word literally figuratively, but using the word literally, literally a showdown between good and evil at high noon at the end, which is fucking sweet, great payoff for the end of the film. So, yeah, Curse of the Undead, 1959, you've got to check that one out. And for our final film, our 30th film on our 31 days of classic horror cinema, The Monkey's Paw, 1948. I love The Monkey's Paw story. It's one of my favorite stories of all time. It's just one of those timeless stories that I think anybody, anywhere can relate to at some point. Be, or Well, <laughs> maybe not relate to. It's the wrong fucking word. What am I trying to say? It's just one of those stories that is so enjoyable when it comes to horror. Anyway, I don't really know what I'm trying to say. My brain's potato at this point. The Monkey's Ball, 1948. I believe there was this was filmed two other times before 48, and it was a stage play before that even, so this isn't the first cinematic version of this tale, but it's the one that I saw. It's the one that was available on Prime, so it's the one that I watched. Or Tubi. I think this was on Tubi. Right, and I think the monkey's paw is very much like stories of the djinn and stuff like that. You know, Wishmaster is something you can compare it to and stuff like that, or you could say it was inspired by that. But I'm going to say there was probably more local cultural stories that are very closely related to this one, and I don't know if that's where this was influenced from, but it is odd that, for one, it's a monkey's paw. So it's a monkey, which is not, you know, we use like lucky rabbit's foot kind of things in America, I would think. So, yeah, the monkey paw wouldn't be something that is... Uh, culturally distinctive to America or anything like that. Plus, in the story, they say that the paw was cursed by an old fakir, and I have no idea what the fuck that is. So I looked it up, and it's a itinerant Hindu ascetic or wonder worker. So, yeah, I'm going to say that's not specifically uh, an American curse. Do, do Americans curse things? Do we even have, like, what is a good American curse? Do we have anything like that? Strange. I guess I've never really thought about that before. But yeah, I think that's part of what makes The Monkey's Paw another great story. It's just the mystery to it. You know, it's not any type of lore, curse, magic, dark magic, or anything like that that we would be familiar with here. So it kind of adds to that, not only mystery, but kind of like exoticness exoticness of it, you know, kind of like a mummy's tomb kind of thing. It's just something that we can't even really identify with or even feel close to. You know, it's just something that's so foreign to us here that when we hear one of these stories, it just, I don't know, it just kind of cements it as something so much more mystical than, let's just say, a haunted graveyard in, you know, the mountains of Northeast uh, America or something like that, you know. All right, so as far as how the movie plays out, we all know the story. It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. So obviously they have to put a little bit of story around it. Someone's got to tell the tale of the monkey's paw because usually those who use it aren't the ones who are going to survive or something bad's going to happen to them. So they do that. They kind of set up a narrator character and how the people came in possession of the paw, which none of that is important for this. But the scene where someone first feels the paw move making a wish is just kind of like that dry throat gut drop scene where you're just like oh shit here it goes and I thought that was cool this is told in a flashback where a guy who had an experience with the paw before he's telling a story about when he witnessed the power of the paw like I said it has a female character that has it and just not even really thinking about it is holding it in her hand and makes a wish and she feels it turn or move or she says squirm like a snake in her hand and she drops it and she screams and they're like oh what'd you wish for you know what's going on so everyone's like ah maybe you're just kind of freaking out maybe it's all in your head 
And it ends up turning into this murder-suicide thing by her drunkard husband. And she, the cheating spouse. And it's just such a, a satisfying... So, well, I won't call it an opener, but just kind of introduction into the... If you did, if you had no idea what the monkey's paw was, it's a good introduction to the paw, its powers, its curse, and what it is capable of doing, not only to people, but the idea of trying to fuck with fate and that kind of stuff. I mean, it just kind of throws all those things out there at once. And it's just such a horrible graphic thing that happens, you know. I mean, a murder-suicide, you know, you're just like, well, fuck. All this from that little old monkey paw? But, you know, to me, The Monkey's Paw, it's just one of the greatest curse horror film, you know, tales ever told, if you ask me. You know, I want to say it was written in, like, not 1902 or 1903, something like that, and it's still terrifying people today. And I guess it's just the allure of the paw and its promise, and it's just such a, a, a palpable thing to, you know, wish for whatever you want, but the dangers of getting whatever you want, you know, careful what you ask for, that kind of stuff, whatever, and just its ability to pervert human nature, you know, ideas of greed and power and lust and lost and, and what role does fate play in all of that or religion or whatever. It's just able to weave all those things together and make you question the valid the validity of all of those. So, yeah, all of that from a fucking monkey's paw. <laughs> You know, and I think that's really cool and adds to the horror of the story because it's this seemingly harmless object. You know, it's just a small, frail looking. In some stories, it's rotted and everything, just monkey's paw, just little old dainty little hand. Like, how could it do any of this or how can it cause anything to happen or force anyone to do any type of action? You know, because every time someone wishes for something and then that action happens, it's never it's never portrayed as like they are under some type of hypnotic trance or anything like that. It's just kind of a natural unfolding of events where the end result gets them what they asked for, but it's at some kind of great price. Like, you know, classic, somebody wants money and one of their family members dies in a horrific accident. In this case, they have a son who's in a motorcycle racing accident where he's burned alive and all this stuff. So and they get money out of it because they wished for some money because they were down on their luck and uh, the dad owed his bookie. And yeah, I just love I just love that there's there's it's inescapable. And then again, like I said, it the the ideas and questions about fate and the fact that this object doesn't have any power unless you give it power, so that can be interpreted as all types of shit, you know. But yeah, it doesn't talk, it doesn't argue with you, it doesn't reason. I mean, it just sits there in your hands and waits for you to ask it for something. You know, it's just a force that seems to exist. Now, I saw one interpretation of the monkey's paw where, and I can't remember what the name of it was, if it was on a Tales from the Crypt episode, or Creep Show, or just, you know, the ABCs of Murder, or whatever, any of those, you know, take your pick kind of shows, where they have the monkey's paw, and some guy ends up getting murdered but they chop his body up and then someone gets it and wishes for that guy to, to still be alive or something like, oh, I just wish he was, I wish he was just still alive or something like that. And then you see all the body parts start moving independently. And then it says something about like, oh my God, you know, that was the last wish. So there's no way to fix any of that. So this guy is eternally just chopped into pieces and then intense amount of pain and just has to live, you know, in parts like that in this crazy amount of pain I don't, I don't know i can't i wish i could remember the name of the fucking movie that came from or the show because man i think i watched it when i was you know way too young to be watching stuff like that and it's always stuck with me i was like oh my god that's terrifying fuck but yeah the monkey's paw 1948 that is our 30th film on our 31 days of horror
classic cinema. I hope you've enjoyed these thus far. It's been pretty cool for me. It's been, uh, it seems a lot more like work, which is, it's in danger of becoming work. I don't want it to become work. I, I don't want horror movies to stop being fun for me, which I don't think they will. But watching 31 films in 31 days has been a hell of a task, but also a hell of a learning experience. And also I've learned a lot about horror cinema and all that kind of stuff. So it's been great. I hope you'd enjoy, have enjoyed these and... I know we kind of bullshitted this whole episode, but these last six films, I just had to kind of blow through them just to get those numbers up. We're going to return back to our regular weekly program, you know, with book reviews and interviews and all that kind of stuff, starting again next month. As a matter of fact, our first episode back will be with the illustrious Curtis Gould from the Gravely Serious Podcast. We actually recorded this a month ago, but it was right before I started these, so I wanted to save the episode for when we came back. So look forward to that. He's going to be on the show. We'll be talking about the horror film High Tension, as well as many, many other things. He's a great guest. Love his show. Love his personality and the energy that he brings to the show. So, So we got that coming up. We also have tomorrow's Halloween extravaganza. We're going to pick the Halloween movie to beat all Halloween movies. And then, of course, I'll read my favorite story. Uh, Maybe a little dramatic retelling or something like that. And, uh, yeah, so that's it. That is our episode for tonight. I hope you're having a kick-ass Halloween. I hope tomorrow's awesome for you. This is Just James Horview. I'm your host, Just James. 